Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the two-witness requirement and domestic abuse. But before we jump into today's topic, let me, let me remind you of what we have available to you at our website, chrismoles.org. chrismoles.org. That's where you can find out more information about me. You can find more information about PeaceWorks and PeaceWorks University, which I talk about every week on the podcast because I think it's your best next step. If you've been enjoying the content on the PeaceWorks podcast and you want to dive in, maybe do a deeper dive on the work that we're doing here on the podcast and the conversations that we're having, well, PeaceWorks University is probably your next best step. We continue the conversation with experts in the field. We add layers on the conversation. And best of all, we organize everything for you in kind of a one-stop shop. So you can uh, find what you're looking for Uh, in categories that apply uh, to what you need. So let me encourage you, if you've benefited from the PeaceWorks podcast, head on over to chrismoles.org and consider joining PeaceWorks University. All right, let's talk a little bit about two witnesses. Now, some folks listening to this podcast may have no idea what I'm talking about, but there is a biblical standard uh, that began in the Old Testament that required Um, accusations or charges to be brought about by two witnesses. It's really a safety precaution against um, frivolous charges. And it's the idea of Moses and, and of course, God through Moses establishing legal precedent for how someone can be charged, say, with a crime, with a violation. And the way you would do that to bring a charge is you would not come with an accusation, but you would come with a witness to the event. And so if I saw, you know, someone stealing and I needed to report that, then, but, but Joey also saw this third party stealing, you know, he and I would go together. That carried over and I'm simplifying it somewhat because of the, the condensed nature of the podcast, but in its simplest forms, that's the understanding that many in the Old Testament operated under. You can find out more about that, I believe, in Deuteronomy 19 is where some of that content is fleshed out in the, um, in the, in the law, in the Old Testament. And many churches that function today have a very similar structure when they're trying to wrestle with cases in which someone has been violated, harmed, or sinned against. They will often connect the concepts from the Old Testament to concepts from the New Testament, like that found in the epistles or that found in Matthew 18, to say that in order to bring a credible accusation, you have to have two witnesses. Now, this is really difficult in our work, and many victims have come against um, some very difficult circumstances, kind of brick walls of resistance, because as you can imagine, abuse Uh, being such a private matter, and in particular domestic abuse being such a private matter, uh, will not lend itself to multiple 
witnesses, right? And so the idea here is a victim comes with an accusation, with a charge, with a concern, with a need for help. And in some settings, pastors and leaders will dismiss one, dismiss one who brings uh, a charge or brings a concern because there's no other corroborating witnesses. Now, there's all kinds of issues and problems with this standard. So let's just start with some of the cultural problems that are present in this standard. Here's the first that I see. The first problem with this standard of requiring a victim to produce a witness to their abuse is that there is there are no such witnesses available in matters of domestic abuse and sexual abuse usually. If there are other parties involved, the likelihood of them coming forward to confess either of their violation of another person, their being abusive, or their complicity in standing idly by while someone was abused is really unlikely. So the likelihood of a secondary witness, someone else who could substantiate the claim, is incredibly unlikely. Here's the other side culturally that that I really, really struggle with. Typically speaking, we are hearing concerns and requests for help from women, women who are victims of um, physical assault, sexual assault, emotional abuse, that are coming to pastors and churches asking for help and ministries requiring a witness. And in doing so, they often hear from the offending party, the abusive partner. And directly or indirectly, what they're doing is they're substantiating the abuser's claim. They are saying, because of a silence of witness, because we don't have someone to corroborate your evidence, your claims, we're going with the other person. We're believing that your partner is the truth teller and you're the liar. Now, some would say, well, Chris, that's that's pretty severe. I mean, it's really not that blatant, is it? Well, as you've heard me say maybe many times, Proverbs 18, 17 is often a scripture that is used quite frequently uh, to, to say you have to hear both sides of the story. In kind of the same vein as the two-witness argument, we'll hear some pastors and leaders saying, when one brings a lawsuit, it sounds reasonable until they're cross-examined. So, yes, the victim's words sound credible until we hear from the supposed offender. And what is often followed with that is like we talked about in our most recent podcast on false accusations, which is, well, we don't want to assume that he's abusive. But in denying her request for help, in requiring uh, extra work and circumstances and, and witnesses from the victim, are we not indirectly saying she's a liar? And culturally speaking, this seems to be a burden that women carry at a much higher degree than men carry, where women's voices are less credible than men's. And I don't think that is a scriptural precedent at all. In fact, I believe that much of the Old Testament case law that would surround things like witnesses and charges and and issues of legality are designed by God to protect the vulnerable, not to make the vulnerable more vulnerable. But unfortunately, many of the laws and legalities and requirements of Scripture are twisted in such a way, or misapplied, I, I might say, in such a way that the, more, the vulnerable become more vulnerable. Their voices are less credible. And I'm not at all convinced 
after interacting with the person of Jesus and looking at the character of God and interacting with the God of the Bible, I am not convinced at all that his design was for our legal procedures to harm victims more. So is there more to the story? Well, I would say yes. There are some exceptions, and I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on this, but I will say uh, Deuteronomy 22, uh, I think, has a interesting exception uh, to the two witness. Uh, it's what some people call the crying out clause or the crying out example, and it, it surrounds ideas of uh, sexuality. And I won't, again, you know, lay out the entire passage, but the idea here is that uh, an individual who's being assaulted in a public place, in a city, in an area where their services help reasonable access to people, is encouraged to cry out during the assault, as opposed to someone who's being assaulted in the countryside who doesn't, isn't held to the same standard. There are punishments for those who remain silent and, and you know, um, grace for those who are not around people. So the idea here is to say this victim of assault doesn't require witnesses. What they require is a voice. Now, we can parse and, and pull apart the passages all we want, but I do want to stop for just a moment and ask the question, what we know about the heart of God, is Deuteronomy 22 really about a specific means of rape prevention and assuaging or, or eliminating one's guilt right, as being a victim of rape, or is it more about the centrality and necessity of a victim having a voice? And obviously, in a public place, in a city setting, her voice will have more weight. Her voice will have more, um, will have more ability to be heard, where in the countryside, her voice is more likely to be diminished or not heard. And you can go through and read Deuteronomy 22 and come to your own conclusions. But I believe what case law does, case law is clarifies, excuse me, clarifies the written law. So in just that one case, we have this example of, is it really about the credibility of the victim, adding credibility to the victim's claim, or is it really about giving the victim a voice? A couple other things to consider when running into this two witnesses thing, and, and I want to do one more cultural thing. I want to kind of back up and, and, and handle it from another angle. There is a significant problem culturally among those who are part of the Jehovah's Witness movement. And again, I don't make it my goal to call other tribes out or people out. But there is a long history of this two-witness policy within the Jehovah's Witness that has allowed for continued child abuse. It's well documented that child abuse goes underreported in that community because of the necessity of a second witness rather than giving credibility to the victim. Rather than giving a voice to the victim, we require a witness. Now, if that, if, if that strikes you as wicked and concerning and your blood pressure begins to go up because there is a thought that there would be a church or a community or a society that would say that a child who is, let's say, sexually assaulted by a caregiver is not heard and the assault, the assaulter, the abuser is not confronted because there was no witness to the assault 
other than the victim who's crying out for help, if our heart breaks for that and we see the evil in that, then why can we not see the evil or the um, incomplete approach to applying that same standard to domestic abuse? Why is it that domestic abuse then is problematic, that we can't move forward until we have a witness? Well, who is the witness for crying out loud? I hate to be so casual on the podcast, but it, it is irritating that we would be so angry if this was applied to child abuse, but so um, having our hands tied when it occurs to the abuse of women in particular. Pivoting for just a moment, a couple other things to consider is what do we mean by witness? I, look, I've, I've ran into some churches um, who really have taken this too far. I want to be completely honest with, it, with you on that, listener. I've run into some situations where it has to be a person who is present at the moment, and I would actually contend that, that if that actually occurred, if there actually was another person who could corroborate the victim's story, I've got a feeling that those ministries, those churches, those leaders would find another excuse. That is how unreasonable some of these demands are. So let's talk about some ways in which other churches have established an understanding of the two-witness principle, I think, effectively. Let's talk about documentation. Documentation is one of those aspects in which many churches who have fallen into this two-witness requirement have found themselves corroborating the victim's claims. Documentation such as the evidence of physical assault, the evidence of sexual assault from medical professionals being more than enough to move forward. Now, listen, I want to say that we really shouldn't have to wait until we have evidence because we're not law enforcement, right? We're not Uh, private investigators. We're pastors and shepherds and church leaders. But I am saying that some churches have seen the wisdom in saying we don't need another person to have witnessed the event. We can clearly see that the event took place. The bruises, the scars, the, the aftermath is evidence enough. What about this? Documentation from the victim themselves. Um, a calendar with Uh, or a diary, or maybe recordings of the event as they happened. Here's the interesting thing. Let's go back to some churches and ministries that I say it would never be enough. There would always be an excuse. I've worked some cases where um, victims have recorded what is clearly abusive behavior in the hopes that someone would believe them, and then the church would dismiss them saying that that was gossip that that was um, wrong of them to record. And so again, turns back on the victim. I want to be very clear. We're, we're talking about individuals that need a level of compassion, that move beyond the legal, legalistic restraints of scriptural uh, principles to the practice um, of the spirit. Not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Understanding that giving a victim a voice doesn't violate this two-witness principle. 
I believe that recordings, documentations, they are all valid second witness accounts. What about suspicion? Some would say that suspicion is not enough to validate or corroborate a claim. But what if you have a friend who maybe leads your small group or your women's Bible study, and she notices red flags and begins to document? Just a note here or there in a you know private journal or a composition notebook or maybe on a wall calendar or, or a desk calendar. Just little notes that she understands, and it builds over time. And eventually, in an explosive episode, the victim seeks help. And this friend, loving friend, comes with their supporting evidence. Would that be enough? I guess what I'm saying is, pastor, church leader, counselor, ministry leader, if you're requiring a witness to the abuse in order to move forward, then what does that mean? require? How much do we need to do? What does the victim need to do? You know, oftentimes Matthew 18 is brought up at this point, and I will have conversations with leaders uh, who sometimes will say, we, you know, we've been working at this for a while. We've been doing this work for months. We, we believe that abuse has taken place. We're going to initiate Matthew 18. We're going to start Matthew 18, which is actually a restorative process that Jesus lays out for when someone is wronged. Now, the problem in my mind with that statement, we're going to start Matthew 18, is it assumes that the leadership of the church initiates that, that process. When the passage clearly states that it's the offended individual, the one who has been harmed, that initiates that process. So for this three to six months, years, however long that the victim has been pleading with you for help, have they told their partner to stop? Have they asked them to seek help? Have they confronted them on their behavior? The answer is uniformly, always, unanimously, yes. At some point, the victim has confronted the behavior that they find um, unacceptable. And yet we take that months or years later and say, well, now we're going to start church discipline. What if we were to be reasonable and responsible and say, now we're going to finish church discipline? That this believer, this person within our family, this person whom we love, has been confronting with no repentance, has been asking them to seek help with no action, has been confronting their wicked behavior while continuing to receive abuse. Why are we beginning discipline? Because somehow we believe our voice is more credible than the victim's voice. I guess it comes back to this listener. I'm passionate about this subject, not because I want to somehow eliminate biblical precedent or standard church procedure or the value of having two witnesses. It's a valuable principle. But I want to reiterate that the scriptures are not driven by letter of the law, principles, and the believer is not driven by letter of the law principles. Again, the the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That we know that not only are there exceptions, there are great gifts within the law and within the New Testament as well that serve the vulnerable, don't harm the vulnerable. So what are we doing? Are we setting up barriers for victims? more hoops for them to jump through, or are we giving them 
a voice? That's the question for today's podcast. My hope and prayer for you as as you continue on your journey of helping those who are hurting is to answer that question well. Are we setting up more barriers for victims to be heard? Or are we giving them a voice? God bless you guys. Thank you for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. We appreciate every one of you. And we look forward to serving with you and, and continuing this conversation in future episodes. Until then, God bless.